It's Monday night, and that means a brand new episode of Graphic Policy Radio, the show that mixes politics and comics. Uh, Tonight's show are for folks who actually give a crap about the topic that we're discussing. It's a very political topic and uh, um, a a great one when it comes to mixing that and entertainment. Uh, We're discussing something that has been an issue for centuries, torture, and specifically its use in entertainment, uh, especially in the Marvel Netflix series Daredevil. Um, Before we introduce, or I introduce our guests, uh, uh, we are joined, or I'm joined by my co-host, Alana. Hello, Alana. How you doing? Hello. I I am so excited to have our guest today. Um, He's someone who's writing about comics and geek culture I've been a really big fan of, and of course, who's reporting. I've really appreciated learning from over the years. So I'm a bit of a a geek girl myself in this situation, which leads (laughs) us to the introduction of our special guest. Yes, uh, definitely makes the show so highbrow. Uh, tonight we are joined by mm-hmm. Spencer Ackerman, is the U.S. National Security Editor of The Guardian, where he was part of the team that won the 2014 Pulitzer Prize for Public Service Journalism for the NSA Surve- Surveillance Revelations provided by whistleblower Edward Snowden. Uh, he's a former senior writer for Wired. Ackerman won the 2012 National Magazine Award for Digital Reporting for his series about Islamophobia in FBI counterterrorism training and having reported from Iraq, Afghanistan, Guantanamo Bay, and numerous ships, bases, and submarines, uh, Ackerman in 2015 exposed a secretive incommunicado police detention center in Chicago called Homan Square, uh, Brooklyn, New York native. His mother taught him to read with Bill Matlow's incredible Hulk run. Welcome, Spencer. How you doing? Hey, thank you guys so much for having me. I'm super excited. Thank you for coming on board. Yeah. We really, really appreciate it. This is a topic I think we've all kind of discussed in other channels uh, a bit, and there's actually been some really good writing on it. So to have an expert on the subject to uh, hear your opinion, I think, is something that's fascinating and not really being done. So uh, to have you on, is, I think it would be really cool, and it should be informative and um, fun at the same time. Um, so what really kind of prompted a lot of the discussion is Marvel and Netflix's Daredevil, which I mentioned. Um, for those who don't know, Daredevil is a lawyer by day and a superhero by night. He is uh, blind and uses his uh, super senses to be able to read heart rates and tell if people are lying. Uh, but that doesn't stop him from beating the crap and uh, torturing villains and uh, criminals whenever he needs to to get information. So, uh, with that being said and out there, and hopefully makes sense for the listening audience, uh, for you, Spencer, like, what is your take on the use of torture for in Daredevil, um, just kind of broadly as a whole? So a couple things. First, um, I want to emphasize that uh, what I'm going to be saying about Daredevil is not simply unique to Daredevil. Uh, to a great degree, this is an endemic problem uh, gone really, um, I think, underexplored in superhero comics generally, especially street-level heroes. Um, the interesting thing about Daredevil and the reason why um, it seems to have prompted this debate is that there's probably not been a superhero depiction on television, a, super, a superhero adaptation, um, you know, maybe in the movies perhaps, uh, The Punisher, terrible, terrible movies are, are an exception, um, <laughs> that's really gone as, as you know, deep into the, the dark, dark crevices that torture takes you as Daredevil, um, combined with, you know, as you, as you set up, uh, Brett, the specific skill set that Daredevil has that makes him 
uh, you know, not just a guy in a mask, but, but a, a superhero with, with a certain kind of power, is that he's a human lie detector. Um, he can sense your heart rate escalating, uh, which, you know, in the real world is, is really not a, a very scientific indicator of, of truthfulness. It's a, it's a great scientific indicator of stress and anxiety. Um, but nevertheless, it serves, you know, as a device in the show, as in the comics, to uh, allow Daredevil and, and through Daredevil the reader to understand who's telling the truth and who's not. So in that circumstance, we kind of obliterate, and uniquely in a way for Daredevil as, as a superhero character, the excuse that almost always goes along with torture, that it's a necessary evil to extract information when all other methods fail. Um, this you'll hear a lot uh, from, from defenders of uh, some of the, the, the torture programs that uh, the CIA implemented over the years um, that, that existed uh, in the military, particularly in Iraq and Afghanistan, uh, that without torture, or what, what's commonly called now the but-for case, but-for torture, we would not have, you know, you've seen this narrative a lot, uh, found Osama bin Laden. Um, this is basically the plot of Zero Dark Thirty. Um, but-for torture, we wouldn't have found the bomb that's about to go off. And in, you know, Without giving, you know, actually, what's our policy on spoilers for this episode? Oh, it's been out for, spoilers. yeah, it's been out for a while. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah. so <laughs> this is our spoiler um, warning. <laughs> okay, so spoiler warning. Um, it, it's going to be a little hard to discuss um, some of the some of the instances without giving away certain plot points. Um, but I won't, you know, go into like the the broader um, plot twists of Daredevil. A friend of mine spoiled it for me. Um, so, uh, so I'm particularly sensitive to this, but, um, as you often hear, you know, but for torture, we wouldn't have found that particular terrorist plot. We wouldn't have found the bomb that's about to go off. Well, in Daredevil, Daredevil tortures a lot. The bombs still go off. Um, never throughout the show, uh, is there much grappling with, with, with the torture that, that Daredevil produces, there's no moment in the show where he doubts himself. He doubts himself in general throughout the, the series and a lot of stuff that he does, but in a kind of agonizing hair shirt way, particularly in the scenes with his confessor, the priest. And then he just goes back to what he was going to do anyway, what he's been doing. Um, and in particular, never really grapples with the after effects of, of, of torture. The, the show typically shows um, people who Daredevil tortures getting what they deserve in some way. Um, so, you know, a couple examples that really stuck with me, um, in, in the third episode, uh, Daredevil is, is so desperate to get the name of his adversary, Wilson Fisk, uh, that he stabs someone through the chest. He, he just takes a piece of what, you know, this, this thing's shot so poorly, so forgive me if I couldn't tell if it's a, a shard of glass or a, or a piece of, of, of jagged metal. He stabs someone through the chest to get Fisk's name. Um, and the guy is, in fact, so terrified of what the consequences are going to be that he kills himself. Um, there's another episode uh, where in order to keep someone alive long enough for Daredevil to torture him, uh, he, he uh, stops the guy from bleeding by lighting him on fire. He just takes a flare, and this is under the guise of cauterizing wounds. Um, one of the reasons that struck a chord with me, and we can get into this a little bit later, um, CIA torture at the, at the black site starting in 2002 and continuing through um, about 2006 uh, were almost always assisted by medical personnel. 
and and uh, some stories that that you hear a lot uh, from from advocates or apologists for the torture programs is that well you know we have doctors there to make sure that it's safe. In fact, from uh, a lot of the accounts we we we've gotten declassified and have ferreted out, it's a you know, much murkier role for those medical personnel. It's not that they're there to make sure that the interrogation is safe. They're there to make sure that in, in a kind of pseudoscientific way, they monitor just how much pain is being applied to the detainee so they don't die and, and put themselves in a position that not only uh, they, they believe will be useless to them for an intelligence perspective, but, you know, potentially criminally actionable. Um, so there's, there's a you know, a lot to be desired in terms of um, how the show demonstrates um, the use of medicine and, and, and kind of doctors for torture. Um, in episode five, uh, there's a cop who's already got a broken arm, and Daredevil keeps twisting it and says something like, you lie to me and I hurt you. Um, and this is happening in order to get a location of someone, and Daredevil can hear the guy's heartbeat, and he knows when when he's telling the truth and, and, and when he's lying, and, and nevertheless the torture proceeds. Um, there's another episode, I think possibly the most heartbreaking one, um, in episode 11, um, after De- Daredevil tortures an entirely different person, even threatening to throw off a roof, uh, in order to get the name of the guy who supplies Wilson Fisk's body armor, uh, he shows up to that guy, the guy's name is Melvin Potter, um, and he's basically a mentally disabled man, and Daredevil is nevertheless just beating the crap out of him, this happens as a first resort throughout the show. Um, I suppose on one level, it's intellectually honest, in, in a sense, to show that the man who's willing to commit torture uh, is not a reluctant torturer. He's not forced into it in any way or, or believes himself to be forced into it. He's just, you know, going straight at it. But at the same time, the way the show uses torture without stopping to interrogate what it's doing, which, again, is not unique to Daredevil. It's typical of the superhero genre, but it's still both, you know, arresting, worthy of having some critical strain put on it, and um, I think a missed opportunity, uh, like happens so often in superhero comics, to explore just what the consequences of of this really are. Eventually, the man is shown on the ground, sobbing heavily, because he's terrified that Daredevil has put him in the exact same position that Daredevil put the guy from episode three. Uh, he's compromised this crime lord who's, who's terrifying people into cooperating with him. We're not even talking about um, henchmen in a lot of cases. We're talking about people who we might initially thought were henchmen, who Daredevil initially thought were henchmen, but in fact were people subject to the tyranny of this, of this crime regime uh, reluctantly pushed into, into these circumstances. And Daredevil is just ruining their lives. Um, perhaps the most tragic element of that scene is not just that he's, you know, the man is, is, is sobbing and powerless and, and lamenting that now uh, people he loves are, are in danger, but that Daredevil did this in episode three. There's a clear callback, and it just doesn't seem to phase him. It doesn't seem to make him think that there's another way of doing what he's doing or that he's even, even interested in it if, if, if there were. And mm-hmm. um, to some degree, uh, I'm not convinced the show means to make all of these critiques uh, that, or that it, it means to open itself up to these critiques or even means to start the conversation that we're having. It remains to me you know, more significant that it might not mean that at all. 
but it's just bought so heavily into these, you know, kinds of decades-old tropes about what it is to be a superhero and the role of violence and from the role of violence to the role of torture that, that it, it just sort of kind of goes with the, with the cape, so to speak. And this is something that really deserves um, more uh, stress put on it, I think, the more that comic books become the laboratories of pop culture. So maybe I'll maybe I'll, I'll stop there and we can talk about some of those points. Or, um, you guys can argue yeah. with me and we can disagree or what? <laughs> no, that's really fantastic. I mean, one thing that I wish I'd looked up, uh, I don't recall, is the episode where he tortures the drug addict who was oh, God, with yeah. uh, the woman's murder. Was that before or after Melvin Potter? I'm wondering. Uh, that, me, was before. Uh, that was before. That was before. Um, oh, Yes, okay. uh, that was, I want to say, episode, I have, I have it in my notes, as episode nine. Um, and yeah, a lot it of people want to watch that one, because that one is just, yeah. Pathetic. I mean, so that's the thing. The thing that I appreciated about the, the one where he's beating up the drug addict is that there is no way you can watch that scene and not say, oh, my God, he's beating up this completely weak, helpless, pathetic person. This is so not necessary. And then the guy says, I'll tell you whatever you want me to say, just stop. And that is like one of the moments where I was like, okay, so this show actually kind of has a clue about what it's trying to do here. Um, and then my, and then yet he comes back and goes and beats up the guy who signals to the audience as being mentally disabled right from the start, who Daredevil might not have realized right away. If he was a better hero, he would have figured out a way to address this, though, though from the start, that it didn't require him beating somebody up until he found out that they were mentally damaged. Um, and, and it's even I, worse than yeah. that, because the the last shot of that scene with the junkie, which, by the way, starts off with the guy being extremely high. So, yeah. you know, already we've got limited utility in whatever Daredevil's going to produce from him. Um, but the very last shot of that scene, after the guy's already, like, multiple times, begged Daredevil to stop hurting him and he'll tell him whatever he wants to know, and in fact does, is Daredevil punching the guy in the face. Yeah. So it's not it's not even just regression from episode nine to episode eleven. It's an almost stubborn refusal to learn any lessons at all. I would submit this is not what I want my heroes to be. Um yeah. and, and I, I can anticipate the inevitable objection, you know, this is escapist fantasy or that, you know, we're we're trying to show, particularly in Daredevil you know, the mean, gritty side of, of, of life and how uh, on compounding levels of institutional failure, there results um, this pressure uh, for, for someone to do uh, the sort of things that, that normal people shirk from doing and, and you know, want to believe um, they're above. And that, um, you know, we see this in, in, in Batman especially, uh, the idea of of uh, of superhero of, of in particular um, Dark Knight as a kind of inverted Christ-like figure, right? Like Batman is doing the thing for your sins. Like you don't want to accept the moral weight of needing to torture people, but you need to torture people. That's always the the um, the presumed uh, the, the presumed contention that when and when whenever Batman does it. He does it because it's necessary. Um, and I think probably the only time, you know, I can, I can recall this, this trope really being challenged 
um, in, a, in an institutionalized way as opposed to like maybe a one-off or, or someone saying, my God, you're torturing him, um, is the Midnighter. Um, Warren Ellis' character, mm. that's sort of you know, his take on Batman. Because the Midnighter just tortures because he loves torture. He's a sadist. He's not trying to be really a hero at all. You know, in the very first Stormwatch episode that Alana, you, bought, you went to him, thank you very much, um, <laughs> where we introduced the Midnighter, you know, he's just sort of getting ready for work with, with, with Apollo and, and really looking forward to just beating the, the, the crap out of people. And as he does it, he narrates not just what he's doing, but what he's going to do and, and how much he loves it and how there's not really a purpose to it aside from the deliberate infliction of pain, that it's its own reward. And there's something, um, in a way stripped of veneer to that, that, that um, you know, deserves credit for being as honest as it is. Um, mm-hmm. And is, you know, it's, I, I'm not really the biggest authorial intent person, um, so I, you know, I hesitate to say that, A, I know what Warren Ellis was thinking, or B, um, that what I think Warren Ellis was thinking matters, because I've got what's on the page. But, um, you know, not only is the veneer stripped off, it's, it's this Rorschach test for you. It's inviting you um, to wonder, you know, is this cool? Is this the ultimate thing that, you know, Batman could do? You know, Batman wasn't bound by all of these broader uh, corporate and continuity obligations. Or, <laughs> yes, this is what Batman would do, and that's appalling. And that's why we shouldn't think of these people as heroes. We should think of them, you know, in the, in the kind of ironic line that, you know, Frank Moore had, had Batman say in Dark Knight Returns, Clark, we're all criminals. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's a great comparison with the Midnighter. I, I, I just want to share something that um, I I just, that, you know, Daredevil's particular superpowers lend themselves towards these particular stories. And that's why that's consistently been a more common story in Daredevil. But when I went through my back issues of comics to look at all the various Daredevil stuff I've read over the years, I don't know if it has, I don't know if it's like something about my taste in comics or what, but I didn't stumble upon nearly as much torture stuff as I thought I would, given the fact that you have a street level character who's a lie detector. Um, so I mean, there is there are other things you can do, but I do think that if you're going to have an examination of this question, this is the character that you need to to, to do it with. Um, and you know, here's a character who's frequently put in opposition to Punisher, right? And, right. you know, Daredevil's always trying to keep Punisher from shooting people. Punisher's always trying to shoot people. And is Daredevil, like, actually sparing people so much? And it's, well, the, you know, all, all, on any rational, real-world distinctions that we want to make are thrown off by the fallacy that torture works. So well, everything, and, and, and is, even, every, everything yeah, sorry, is a game because it doesn't work in real life. So it's all just speculative. It doesn't actually, you know, it doesn't actually contributing to a conversation around the efficacy of torture. And we're also stuck in this heuristic where what matters about torture is whether or not it works. Like, we're not asking uh, moral questions about torture. We're not um, remotely near a universe of, of prohibition that, you know, what it is to be a hero is to eschew this and, and, and to just refuse to do it. There are, of course, heroes who, who make that critique. Um, but very often, you know, like, for instance, 
the Flash, uh, they're treated as, as, you know, somehow naive. Um, in reality, not only does torture not work, um, but uh, the consequences of torture on the tortured are irrevocable. Um, I'd like, you know, to tell one story um, that uh, that someone was who I can't name was was uh, very generous to tell me. Um, this individual uh, was uh, picked up by uh, the army of a kind of of a, of a central African country, and for nine months subjected to torture such as, you know, being hogtied, you know, having your, your hands and your, and your feet tied together behind your back and kept in that agonizing, uh, the euphemism I, I really dislike, but is a kind of term of art at this point, stress position, um, yeah. either for uh, a retributive purpose, um, either for an allegedly informational purpose, or just out of pure sadism and, and making a point for political repression. And this happened um, a very long time ago. And every single day, uh, this individual told me, he, he grapples with his PTSD. Uh, when he goes out at all, and he tries not to, he has to be in really big crowds because he's terrified that if he's just with a couple people on the street, and a van comes up and shoves him into it, there aren't going to be any people there to, to either watch or, or help him resist or even care at all. Um, he told me that he has a hard time believing that he's worthy of love, uh, and he, he can't start a family because of that. Um, he doesn't feel like uh, he possesses the basic skills necessary to not only uh, keep a family safe, but keep a family together and provide for him. Uh, he loses jobs a lot. Uh, the churn of this on someone's life can't be diminished. And it, it, it you know, is somewhat irresponsible of comic books to uh, put that just on a couple panels. You know, the henchman who's punched a couple times and then knocked out or something like that. Uh, and then it disappears. Um, all of those stories in comic books have to happen kind of off-panel. Like, you know, every now and then I imagine uh, a silent story that takes place over 15 years of, of someone who has to sort of uh, greatly and with great terror, anxiety, and depression go through everything that I just described from, from the individual from, uh, from the Central African country until, you know, after 15 years when he can't hold a job, he can't have a relationship, he stays in bed all the time and so forth. He goes to a group therapy session in the basement of a church and finally stands up and says, I was, I was 19, I sold weed, and the Batman tortured me. And I'm, I'm waiting to see uh, a comic book creator, a comic book company, really anyone, take that critique or take any critique of torture and start applying them in, in the stories. You know, we're a society that now... Um, you know, nearly uh, 14 years after 9-11, um, has tried to grapple with the legacy of, of, of this country's uh, em employment of torture um, on, on lots and lots of people at this point, including some, I think, you know, 30 people identified in the Senate torture report um, who the CIA just does not say where they are at all to this day. Um, literally disappeared people. Uh, cases where uh, people in CIA custody 
um, including a man named Gennat Gould, begged for death because they were subject to torture techniques, really everything in the approved, um, I believe it, it was uh, 10 so-called enhanced interrogation techniques um, that George Tenet approved at the CIA uh, with Condoleezza Rice's knowledge and the Bush administration's support, uh, all except waterboarding. Uh, he was he was picked up on the presumption that he knew something about someone who was going to pull off a terrorist plot emanating from Pakistan. After this guy begs for death, it comes out that, in fact, the person who initially accused him recanted his entire story, probably because that person was tortured. Yeah. So we, as, as a society, uh, this is something that we'll be grappling with forever. It's something that the victims will be, or, or will decide not to, um, because we decide that conversation is, is too uh, painful for us. Um, the victims will be grappling with it forever. And we still don't see, in, in, in a way that I still find kind of unique for comic books, which, which have made such you know, strides over the last three decades um, to really bring more, more richly realized stories that uh, challenge preconceptions of earlier generations of, com- of, of comic portrayals. We haven't had that with torture yet, and I feel like we're overdue. Definitely. Definitely. So I, I kind of want to get back to something that we kind of touched on a little bit earlier, um, where we were talking about his, his Daredevil and Matt Murdock's confession, you know, how he seemed to either go to confession in church or there's the one episode where it's just him and Foggy, and I, I kind of took that entire episode as a confession. Mm-hmm. Yeah, how, how much do either of you think that that really plays into the fact that that's why he's willing to go as far as he does, is that he can confess and kind of absolve himself of these horrific things he does. Um, when kind of preparing for this, I, I stat that I found that I thought was fascinating was, in back from 20, 2005, so I don't know how how uh, exact it is nowadays, but it says 75% of Catholics supported torture, which was like far and wide, like one of the highest kind of uh, demographics to do so. Um, with him being Catholic and him like confessing all the time, like I just think that's it's almost something that was done kind of purposely by the creators. I wonder about that. Wow. It's a great question. Um, for one thing, um, it, it also shows what a missed opportunity Daredevil is, right? Because he's probably the only major comics character I can think of who, throughout his whole mythology, um, has had an overtly religious and 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 um, incredibly Catholic background to, to the oh, point yeah. where it really is. I'm sorry? Helena, Bernan- Helena Bernanelli, Huntress. But yes, she's the only oh, other sorry. one. Oh, sorry. Yes, you're right. Um, but she's the only another other torturer. <laughs> another notorious yes, torturer. she is. Oh, fuck. Mm-hmm. Right. Wow. Yeah, so, like, wow. here, we, here we have these examples of very religious characters, and particularly from a tradition um, with you know, quite a distinguished history, particularly in Latin America, of resisting torture, um, as well as an institutional history, of course, um, at, at, at various points in, in the church's existence um, of using torture. So you've got this, you know, this conflict that, that exists with people, but, you know, because there is such a, a heavily moral and moralizing component, you could have used that uh, as a way of, of, of questioning uh, the use and the efficacy of torture. I, I feel like it's another thing that this show, which in many ways I think is quite good, um, d- treats very superficially and unseriously. Um, 
the foggy interrogations of, of, of Matt Murdock in which, you know, finally we have um, an, an avatar for the reader who thinks that what's going on is appalling and what uh, Matt is doing is Daredevil is immoral, is illegal, uh, is a perversion of everything uh, that he, he claims to value. And Matt takes that and does exactly the same things that he's been doing later on. Um, so, uh, you know, it, it strikes me that uh, perhaps the critique is that uh, Murdoch likes to have a hair shirt, and this is what he views confession as, as, as for. It, it's, you know, he needs the purgatory. He needs to have uh, himself be wounded, because unless he punishes himself for doing it, uh, then he can't, in fact, do it. Um, there's an, a really excellent uh, short that Al Ewing wrote for uh, one of the uh, original Sims um, issues. Uh, I, like, I, trust me, I, I didn't expect to be reading that crossover at all. <laughs> I was having a, a kind of late-night um, Marvel Unlimited binge. But this is a great piece. Um, this, 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 this short story is, is basically... Um, a conversation between uh, now at this point old white Nick Fury and Dum Dum Dugan, in which like Dugan learns, and I won't spoil this amazing oh, reveal. I know what you're. But then, like, I know exactly what you're doing. Yeah, yeah, it's one of the yeah. best War on Terror critiques I've ever read in a comic. I thought can, it was fantastic. Can you can you spoil but basically, it? Basically, like for, for, for a reader without. Read it. Yeah. Sorry. We might as well. Most people are going to have read it, so yeah. spoil it. Okay, well, well, someone who's not me doing. I'm, I'm going to be the Matt Murdock of this situation. I want my hands. <laughs> <laughs> That's you, Brett. I haven't read it. Yeah, oh, it. yeah, it's what it would oh, we're talking with the one where it's revealed about Dum Dum and his actual status, right? Yeah, exactly. So uh, you kind of so the whole thing with original sins is you find out that uh, all the Nick Furies that we've been dealing with have actually been life model decoys, and the real Nick Fury is basically kind of protecting all of Earth and up in a satellite. And after this long conversation with Dum Dum, uh, you basically find out that Dum Dum had died a long time ago, and that the Dum Dum that we know is a life model decoy. Um, and that's like the, my biggest takeaway. But I remember reading it and being was like a really good emotional like crux to it. it doesn't it's not as bad as it sounds. So so the the broader significance of this book is not just like that continuity reveal for, for Marvel, yeah. but that for something like fifty years, Nick has been downloading a fake I'm sorry, uploading a fake dum dum consciousness into various dum dum life model decoys because Nick needs someone around him who will question him who will tell him that what he's doing is wrong, that he can't do it, that it's immoral, that he's crossing a line, and so forth. And then Fury does it anyway. And there's this moment where Dum Dum just says, like, I'm not your conscience, I'm your hair shirt. And he he eventually just says, like, now that I know that this is what you've been using me for, I want you to kill me. Never do this to me again. This is a perversion of our friendship. And my life at this point is meaningless, and all I want is oblivion. And, you know, I felt so like there's this famous um, Michael Walter essay, which is just, you know, your um, basically your primer uh, for the liberal who wishes to torture. And uh, it starts from all of these presumptions that like 
you face a truly existential threat and there's no other way of getting around it. You need to extract information for, from people in order to do it and that torture is the way to do it and that it works and all of these, you know, other kind of, you know, convoluted billboard sh- uh, billiard shots that the real world doesn't let you align. And finally, he comes to this conclusion, like, as long as after you do it, you publicly uh, expose yourself and say you're very, very, very sorry, then you can torture people. And that's a, an acceptable way to do it. It's called the clean hands argument. And Jesus. here we see Nick Fury trying to make some version of that. Of course, it's not a real case because, first of all, these, these, these actual cases that, that Walzer and others presume, they're always hypotheticals. They're never the way this stuff actually works. Um, torture in the wild is like a virus. It's not controllable. You tell yourself constantly, and you see this in, in the kind of bureaucratic histories of societies that torture, that they're just going to do it for a specific purpose to a specific group of people for a designated period of time under circumstances that, you know, uh, are, are absolute last gasp situation. And maybe it works like that for a couple days or weeks. And then inevitably it migrates and gets worse. And once you erode the prohibition on torture in one place or one entity within uh, your security apparatus, it spreads to others. Others don't abide by the same strictures. And and this is how we go from uh, the CIA arguing that it needed to put Abu Zubaydah uh, and and, uh, and, and al-Qaeda suspects um, who is in a Thailand black site in a confinement box for a couple weeks on end, a, a box smaller than his body. Uh, or in, in some cases, like the dimensions are like barely big enough to accommodate his body for weeks on end. And we get there through a variety of, of, of steps, um, like, a, like a rock skipping through, through a pond uh, to Abu Ghraib. Um, eventually, this stuff just infects other places. And we, you know, we had seen as well, like obviously Nick Fury, you know, leader of this clandestine, you know, global peacekeeping force, is not going to go public with, with all of the stuff that he's done in secret. And that very much mirrors the way torture is actually operating in the wild. This isn't something that people admit doing. It's not something that particularly policymakers say that they've done and then accept the consequences for. That never, ever happens. It never would happen. It's naive of of Walter and everyone who considers this, you know, asinine story plausible at a baseline uh, to even think mm-hmm. that, that it could ever happen because we can't, you know, we can't find examples in which it does. The only examples that, you know, I've, I've heard people who've committed torture um, express, I, I think, like, in some cases, very sincere, deep and profound regret. Um, I recall in, in 2010, I was at Guantanamo Bay to hear uh, testimony in a pretrial hearing for Omar Cotter. Uh, Omar Cotter uh, was a 15-year-old child soldier um, who never had a chance in life. Um, his parents took him to Afghanistan when he was, when he was a boy. Uh, at one point, they shared a compound with Osama bin Laden. The guy's a Canadian citizen. Cotter gets captured by U.S. forces that stormed his compound in Jalalabad uh, in July 2002. He's 15 years old. He's, he's really banged up in this attack in which he might have thrown a grenade that killed a U.S. medic, um, an Army uh, Special Forces Sergeant named Christopher Spear, um, to the point where he's blinded uh, and he has buckshot all throughout. He has, he has shrapnel all throughout him to the point that um, a nickname that he was given at, at, at the Bagram uh, uh, Air, Air Base's prison uh, was Buckshot Bob. Um, this kid 
was tortured inside Bagram and then later at Guantanamo Bay for a very long time. He was in Guantanamo for about nine years. And uh, in 2010, I was hearing testimony by one of his Bagram uh, interrogators, um, a man uh, named Damien Corsetti, um, who at the time um, that he was at Bagram had uh, a, a tattoo on his stomach called Monster. Um, it, it said Monster on it because that was his nickname, and he got his nickname for exactly the reason uh, that you think from this story he got the nickname, um, by brutalizing detainees. And this man, I, I believe, expressed such sincere remorse um, and to this day has been trying to make sense of his life um, by what he, he was ordered to do and what he, you know, says, you know, beyond what he was ordered to do, he did enthusiastically because that was the circumstance that he was in, and he didn't question it. And he's trying to put his life together by figuring out how he could have become this monster. And he, he, he clearly doesn't want to be it anymore. Um, you know, if there was a scene in Daredevil where Daredevil did that, you know, that would be... I feel like a breakthrough moment uh, for comic books uh, where, where just, you know, he, he's face-to-face with the consequences of his actions, uh, where he's, he's stripped of any ability to justify them as necessary, um, and, and finally just accepts that what he's done is, is monstrous, that, that, that it's, you know, no different from any of his enemies. And this just never happened because, of course, Damien Corsetti has made a decision and put himself in a circumstance in life where he's not going to torture anyone anymore. And the, the, the way that we've, we've had our superheroes portrayed to us for so long is like, that's the one thing they can't do. Like if, if you're going to be in a cape, if you're going to be jumping over rooftops and you torture, you kind of stick with that. Well, how much, how much I have to add, well, um, not to cut you, I don't want to copy off, but this kind of weighs on my mind for quite a while. Like, how much do you think is just like lazy writing? I mean, you know, with with Daredevil, he's got to get the information, he's got to figure out who Wilson Fisk is, or Batman needs to find Joker's latest plot. You know, there's there's not an excitement in the storytelling that I can think of, unless someone has really done something and someone please point to me. Uh, where them going, you know, putting the pieces of the puzzle together is exciting, whereas, you know, I can torture this guy in a couple panels, and boom, we've got our information, and we can move on to our next point, and that it's being used as just a plot crutch to go from A to C, where B is torture. Oh, I, I have to respond to this real quick, because Please, I do yes. think that a lot of times it's lazy storytelling, but I think it'd be better storytelling if they actually should be doing detective work. So, um, there... Uh, a, uh, something Chanty Collins had said on Twitter is actually uh, uh, that his um, editor at Wizard Magazine used to say, his editor was called Pat McCallum, which is that you can tell a good Batman story from a bad Batman story, because in a bad Batman story, Batman just goes around hitting people for information like Daredevil, quote. Whereas a good Batman story, Batman does detective work to solve the crime, solve the case. And I just was, I was just hit by that, and I was like, yes. That is an accurate description <laughs> um, because you can, you do have room if you know how to write. You can do I mean detective genre fiction is a huge genre. I mean people love reading detective stories, right? Um, but Daredevil was built with his lie detector powers. Daredevil was built to torture people for information because he actually knows if you're lying or not. And Batman and other detectives are supposed to solve cases not by beating people but by doing detective work. And. You know, it, it strikes me as probably just something that 
lots of comic writers didn't think to consider. Um, you know, how many comics writers have, have, have a background uh, um, with, with, with these issues? Um, how many of them have done human rights work or um, are, are, are veterans themselves? Uh, obviously, I'm not saying that, you know, to be a veteran is to be a torturer, um, but that they've seen human misery up close in a lot of cases. Um, is the is the point and, and how it, it sticks with you and and how it um, leads to a kind of brittleness and not a, a, a resilience at times um, because of, of of just how how damaging it can be particularly if you if you let it fester um, I you know there must be those people in comics but I don't see them you know I don't see the stories that, that really interrogate the idea. That, that torture is a necessary evil, that torture is an unalloyed, uh, is an unalloyed good even, or, um, you know, anywhere uh, th- throughout that spectrum. Um, and it just seems so overdue. You know, we've had yeah. so, so many great stories, particularly over the last, you know, 15 years, that subverted various aspects of the superhero genre um, and, and used them as clever metaphors to explore um, the war on terrorism or, or just the nature of warfare or, or, or you know, basic aspects of human aggression. And, and this is just something that, that you know, feels overdue. Um, I don't really know how you do it. I'm not a comics writer and I'm not, you know, a good fiction writer. Um, but it, it just seems like there's, you know, particularly because it's, it's something of a glass jaw for the genre, that the first writer who figures out really how to do it is going to hit on something special. Um, uh. Is going to, 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 to you know tap into a market, a feeling, a zeitgeist, whatever that lots of people might not have thought was, was even there. Um, in in the way that like you know fandom has been ready for Miles Morales for a really long time. Fandom has been ready for Kamala Khan for a really long time. Um, you know, go on down the line with with a lot of the new, um, more diverse uh, heroes with with um, with more kind of relatable uh, ideas um, and expressions and 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 storylines. Um, they did, you know, the the, the 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 fans have already been there, and that's why they react so strongly because it's 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 this market drought. Um, I don't know how many fans are like me on this. Um, I don't know how many you know, find this particularly interesting. Um, but I feel like, you know, the writer who figures out how to do this or who even just shows the interest in doing this is really going to hit on something special. Um, the closest analog that I could find, that I, and I really like this, um, when, when they did it, um, Alana, I know you're not um, a fan of, uh, of the Arrow on CW. I have um, not <laughs> it. I don't acknowledge well, it. You don't acknowledge it. I watch it. Um, He's so, a fan, yeah. No, I watch it. Well, without, <laughs> I, I, I like it. I, I, want, I see what you're saying. It's definitely not, you know, Green Arrow. I'm, I'm hoping that the show eventually builds up um, the character to the point where he has the kind of politics that um, makes Green Arrow a unique and really interesting character. Um, I doubt it because it's TV, but nevertheless, um, <laughs> I hope against hope. But, um, you know, the, the Oliver Queen that's on the CW, the Arrow, is constantly torturing people. Like, he starts off just straight up murdering and torturing, and then he decides, like, oh, let's tone down the murder. That's probably not cool. 
but I definitely need to constantly be shooting arrows in people, twisting them in their arms, and then asking them for information, and then, you know, punching them when I'm done with it. Um, and finally, they have this crossover with, with, with The Flash, and um, The Flash that they, they show is basically like if Barry Allen was Wally West, um, which, is, which is very appealing to me. Um, and The Flash is, is watching Arrow do his thing, and he's just like, you're torturing these people. What the hell are you doing? Like, he, he, you know, it's, it's Wally, it's, um, I'm sorry, he called him Wally. Uh, it's Barry, who just has this instant moral revulsion because he is actually a decent person and believes that, you know, heroism is, is a matter of, of, of a higher uh, set of standards for yourself, an example that you set. Um, and then basically, like, Oliver talks him into it, and, like, because they can't make Arrow into a villain or even really an anti-hero, um, they're bound by the necessity of him being a protagonist to get caught up in this critique that actually the torture isn't so bad. And they have him do a flashback in which, like, he doesn't want to torture, but Amanda Waller basically forces him to, because if he doesn't, and the moment that he relents in it, a part of Hong Kong blows up. So we've got literally the most cliché... Um, and yet the most influential and the least realistic scenario for torture, the so-called ticking bomb scenario, whereby uh, there's a prisoner in your custody, there's a bomb that's going to go off, the prisoner is uncooperative, you know that he knows where it is, what will you do to get that you know, bomb information out of him and save everyone's lives? This never happens in the real world. In the real world where this happens, the prisoner lies. And yet this lesson never, ever, ever gets learned. I would submit it never gets learned because it's really, really, really convenient for the people uh, who order other people to torture to never learn this lesson. Um, nevertheless, like, this is probably the real reason beyond writerly disinterest that um, superhero comics don't delve into this too seriously. It kind of breaks the genre. Like, we've got... Oh, man, 75 years of Batman stories in which Batman just straight up tortures people. You know, the Batman is a real public menace. You know, the idea of a freelance torturer is amongst the most terrifying things I can think of. And I'm not really um, buying the idea that, like, we should just trust Batman to torture the right people. Um, when you get a character making that argument to Batman... You, you really, you know, left him with two choices, neither of which are appealing, which is to change absolutely everything about the Batman or to apologize for what the Batman does and claim it is for the greater good and, you know, show a scenario where the person making that critique is, is horribly wrong and the Batman is, is shown to be right. And those are the rules that the genre is kind of playing by. And someone's got to break that wheel. Someone's got to come along if nothing else, for the health of the genre to introduce, you know, a new idea, to introduce an idea that really does have the, you know, the force of, of, um, of the rock hitting the windshield, where it just it, it splinters out and takes a lot of dross with it, um, to, to just launch that story and make it real. I, I don't think you really can do it with Batman because of everything that, you know, is, is tied up with Batman. Um, but someone, if someone does it, and someone, you know, I know there are a lot of great writers out there, if someone does it, it could really take superhero comics into a, a fascinating and, and I think possibly redemptive place. Well, I do, though. I say that Batman has generally been written in 
as regressive as humanly possible. But Batman is a detective. You can write Batman without him torturing people because he is a detective. It's a you totally it's an intellectual you challenge. Totally can. And the other I mean, thing detective, is, so yes, yeah, yeah, sorry, go on. And also, the other thing is, you know, all the comics I read every month, like they're really, I can like tell you which ones have torture and which ones don't. And then the ones that don't have torture that are conflict-driven superhero comics. It's because people have powers that enable them to not need to do that because there's telepaths or there's other just things going on, you know. So it's sort of like in the comics that don't include torture, it's because they've short-circuited the need to have it at all. Either because, yeah. I, I mean, generally speaking, comics that aren't dealing with, quote, stopping crime, quote, don't have that even come up at all, really. But even in some that, that do, like, I mean, Nobody's getting tortured in Silver Surfer. Like nobody is getting tortured right. in Silver Surfer. That just isn't happening. But like I don't know. In some of in in, in Spider Woman, you know she like there's different characters who have the have different abilities that surplant the need to be able to torture people for information. Um, I do think that you're what you're saying about this needing to be something that somebody writes more deliberately rather than it just being like, you know, I could draw you a safe list, quote safe list like of comics you can read that don't have torture if somebody's like triggered by that or what have you. But it's not like people are writing those comics to expose the fact that you can do things without torture. And what just keeps killing me, again, with Daredevil, is that his torture actually works, whereas in real life it doesn't work. Um, and and so not unique that to Daredevil. It almost, not working. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, and not just unique to Daredevil. Again, this is endemic throughout the genre. In, in, in some ways, it's part of the rules of the genre. If you have the superhero torture for no reason... Or if you have the superhero torture and it's futile, you know, you're, you're left with a circumstance in which he is not just, you know, less than heroic, but is in many ways a, a, a deeper criminal than what he's trying to stop. Or he's, um, you know, so wrapped up in, in his righteousness that he has to be um, set back on a different path and that path doesn't really involve reckoning with it. You have so many examples of, of superheroes who over the years um, regret killing people. You don't really have very many examples of superheroes for whom, like, the systemic infliction of torture is what weighs on their mind. Like, Batman, you, you're right. Like, there are some great, great Batman stories. Frankly, there are great Batman stories with torture. There are great Batman stories without torture that are great detective stories. Great detective stories are really hard to write. So, you know, I, I, I suppose that's one explanation for why they're, they're compa- comparably few and far between. Um, but another is, is just that to have a character so weighed down um, by his or her deliberate infliction of torture um, just sends the character into a place that um, it doesn't seem like a lot of particularly DC or Marvel heroes really want to go, like reckoning with all of that. Um, I, I find it kind of amazing that, you know, some superheroes, like, after they kill someone, like, in a rage or something like that, like, do in fact demand to be locked up. They recognize that that's crossing a line. But that's the only line they recognize. Killing and not killing. Not the deliberate infliction of pain degrade, or, or, or degradation or mental suffering on helpless people. That's just not a line comics recognizes as a line. 
what so do you think part of that also has to do with that you know modern comics because I can't think of, of comics more in like like the old school 60s 70s comics where there was tons of torture to me it seems to mm-hmm. have in comics become more prevalent with the anti-hero like post 80s where you know they're they're exploring the idea of the hero as the monster and this dual personality um, you know that there's something to that to it as well that you know they do skirt or cross the line and that that's part of them you know that's supposed to be part of the discussion that's maybe not actually part of the discussion it just is at this point that it's gotten to the point where we're no longer debating that like watchmen when that came out you know they were torturing the shit and doing horrible things to people and that was part of the the brilliance of the book was you know you debated that you debated their actions uh, when punisher launched when even wolverine you know became the the you know the best there is at whatever he does uh, you know, they were killing people and torturing people and doing horrible things, and we talked about it and we debated it. But now that's so common that the torture takes place and the killing takes place and the horrible acts take place that it's just we don't think anything of it because it's common. I want to common. put a little bit of stress on it. I'm sorry, I cut you off. No, 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 that's it. I was done. <laughs> I, I want to put. A, I, I think it's it, it's in many ways a good point. I want to put a little stress on it, Brett. Um, with the anti-hero uh, rise in the 70s, um, you don't really get a lot of distinction within the, the general level of violence of what you know, makes this person an anti-hero. It's basically like, are they willing to, you know, with Punisher or Wolverine or, or um, Adrian Chase, the vigilante, is one, of my, is one of my other favorite examples because I got into him through, yeah. through Teen Titans. Um, you know, uh, you, you've got just... Heroes who are just willing to be very violent, and that's what makes them anti-heroes. There's not a distinction drawn between violence for what purpose. So it, it serves as a kind of way of, of, of evading the consequences of torture or the consequences of being a hero who tortures. Like, the Punisher is just violent, period. So you, you don't really expect there to be um, different moral standards or different degrees of moral condemnation for when he's torturing someone for information, which he does all the time and in gruesome, gruesome ways, uh, versus the, the, the standard level of violence that he inflicts. Wolverine, I defy you to find examples of him actually torturing people. I've, I've gone back through this a lot. You see him, you know, off panel and, you know, even sometimes on panel, like just absolutely like in the berserker rage, like ripping people apart. But part of what I think actually, you know, from, from, from Claremont, um, on has has made Wolverine a, a hero is that he doesn't deliberately inflict pain on people who like he's beaten. You know, there's a nobility to Wolverine that that, that the the Japanese um, arcs uh, really help bring out a lot. That it's not you know Wolverine is is constantly a story of of a man trying not to be an animal and even when he is an animal and he does horrific, like, blood-curdling things, um, he's doing them not with this deliberate sense of causing, you know, degradation, which is part of what, what, what's wrapped up in torture. I'm sure, you know, some readers are going to be able to quote me examples of, of Wolverine stories <laughs> where, where he does, and I would just admit, like, those are not true to, to the character, but, you know, I, I would accept those corrections. Um, I I would think you know, there would be a couple. Like, I, with, I'm sorry. So there's I mean there's a couple of I mean if you want to you know if you add in psychological torture, I mean there's definitely scenes where he does like the third claw popping. Yeah, the third claw trick. Have, 
Yeah, and so if you go with the psychological, there's that. I want to say he's tortured, like, can character. Like, it's not common. It's not the Punisher, where Punisher's, like, seems to get off on it. Yeah, that's what he does. No, it's a good point. Yeah, I mean, he definitely... And and to me, like, those scenes, the more violent aspect, really became prevalent, not necessarily in the 70s, but definitely during the 80s. Like, Mm post-Dark Knight Returns and Watchmen and... um, uh, really can, can I share a Watchmen story? Oh, yeah, please. Yeah, absolutely. So here's a Watchmen story that I think is kind of um, uh, sailing into this conversation. Uh, I saw Watchmen in the theater, and among the, the scenes I was most interested in was how they were going to do Rorschach in jail. Um, and yeah. for, for anyone who's not read Watchmen, um, the the scene is probably one of the most memorable in the entire series, even if you're you're not really into the series. Um, Rorschach is, is on uh, line for Chow uh, and a prisoner behind him who's got a shank starts talking about how he wants to get his autograph Rorschach uh, to preempt the attack uh, reaches for uh, a fry basket and, and just pours boiling oil on him uh, and, and it's one of the, the most gruesome things I think comics have ever done um, and no, you know, Alan Moore being Alan Moore, we can probably safely assume that, like lots of stuff that Rorschach does, you know, in the context of, you know, Watchmen being a very critical exploration of comics as a genre, that's supposed to be, you know, there's a reason why it's called Rorschach, a Rorschach test for you. What do you think of this? What do you make of it? I was in a theater where everyone cheered. Mm-hmm. And look, well, I get that, like, this scene has a badassery to it that can be really infectious, but just in that moment, like, stimulus response, Rorschach burns a prisoner to eventually to death uh, mm-hmm. with, with boiling oil when you think that, you know, this guy being a superhero will have lots of ways where he could or should incapacitate people short of that doesn't bother at all. Um, issues a threat that everyone else um, is locked up in there with him so that they're at his mercy rather than the other way around. And the response was just this jubilation in the audience. And, and that's the sort of thing where, like, I'm not a, I don't want to be a moral scold. Um, I, I don't believe that, you know, uh, we should only enjoy art that matches our politics um, or anything like that. Um, I really think there is room um, for a lot of ugliness uh, in art, and it's okay to enjoy that, recognizing the ugliness. Um, And yet it kind of speaks to to how powerful these stories can be and the accordant need, I think, to at least have some story, some institutional avenue, some mechanism within the genre to question it and place stress on it. But I mean, I do think that the cheers are because the "you're locked in with me" line is so good. I actually it, don't. It is a badass line. The cheers are because, yeah, exactly. That line is so good. I think the cheers. No, are I'm that telling line. you. I'm telling you. While huh. there were people who cheered the line, there were people who were just simply cheering the burning. I believe it. Well, so I mean, part of it, and, and you know, we don't have enough time to discuss this because we're kind of coming up on the hour. I mean, we're also now talking where there is an entire genre of entertainment called torture porn that's out there. 
Um, and it's interesting, mm-hmm. well, leading up to this whole episode, I, I was doing a, a lot of reading on this. And, you know, Eli Roth, who is, you know, Torture Porn King, has a lot to say on it. And, and part of his discussion was, you know, it's supposed to be a reflection that man is now uh, the monsters and uh, uh, that civilization can collapse and you can get killed at any moment. And, um, you know, it, you know, the dark side of human nature. Um, and there's a point to it where it's common and pretty desensitized. Like, you know, it's out there a hell of a lot in entertainment to the fact that there's a subgenre of entertainment named for it. Yeah. And again, I, I, you know, I hesitate to say that there isn't a place for that. Um, what I suppose I'm arguing, um, if I'm arguing anything at all, is that it, we're, we're overdue um, as superhero comics fans for, an, for, for a critique from inside a superhero comic of this entire enterprise of torture, of, 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 of the, the idea that we're trapped into a debate about its utility rather than its morality. Um, you know, it's, it's fascinating to me that, you know, two examples of uh, superheroes who, who torture and torture on the reg um, that we've just mentioned, Adrian Chase, the vigilante, Matt Murdock, Daredevil, are lawyers. You know, these, mm-hmm. these, these are people who are supposed to, you know, live particularly within uh, the boundaries of the law um, and are supposed to uphold it as the thing that separates us from barbarians, as, as the thing that, that, that defines civilization. And you just simply don't count as a civilized person if you torture. You, you are not a civilized society if you embrace torture. You are a society that, that has allowed a very deep rot that, that doesn't stay in one place. This is, you know, an in-situ cancer. Um, if you permit this, and if you uh, permit it to operate with impunity, um, and down the line, and the, the dialectic with Daredevil of, of, you know, Murdoch being the lawyer and Daredevil being the vigilante um, is, is a cool tension, and it's a cool thing to play with. But it never gets played with in this way. Or like Daredevil should be able, like Adrian Chase should be able, to point you to all sorts of statutes that he routinely violates, and particularly the importance of like uh, locking up people who torture who aren't Daredevil or who aren't vigilante. And this just doesn't get addressed except in the most superficial of ways. And um, I, I look forward to the comics writer... Uh, who nails this because I think he or she is going to do something special. I think that's a, probably a good point to to wrap it up because um, we're at the hour. So uh, before we go, um, is there do you, it's, it's your chance to plug. So if you want people to follow you in a certain place, uh, catch your reading elsewhere, like uh, the floor is to you, uh, Spencer, to, to kind of plug uh, where people can, can catch up with you after this. Sure, thanks very much. Uh, Brett and Alana, I, I really appreciate you, you letting me uh, rant on your podcast. Um, I'm sorry I monopolized this conversation. Um, oh, that's what you're here for. It's thank good. You. Well, thank you so, so much. Um, I'm yeah. at Attackerman on Twitter, um, and you can find my writing um, most days of the week um, at theguardian.com. Uh, thank you so, so much. Yeah, appreciate you coming on and uh, – it has been an enlightening uh, show for me. Um, 
don't want to speak for Alana, but I learned yeah, a lot. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Thank you. Good to have journalists on the show. Oh, speaking of journalists, our next episode on Monday is going to be with another journalist. <laughs> it's going to be with Sarah Jaffe, and we'll be talking about Ultron. I know you guys have been wondering why the hell we haven't put on an Ultron podcast yet, and you're about to finally get it. So, yes. So come back next so week. I can't wait for that. Yeah, it should cool. be an interesting one because it's not like uh, the show where the movie hasn't had some controversy surrounding it. I've heard nothing. I've not been all but nothing but uh, <laughs> roses and bunnies and rainbows and unicorns. Uh, <laughs> so uh, that wraps up another episode. Thanks again, Spencer, for coming on, and it's been I think a very uh, enlightening and uh, fascinating episode. Appreciate it. Um, so yeah, Thank you catch us next. Yeah, appreciate it. Um, you can catch us next week. We've got Sarah Jaffe on, and we'll be talking Avengers Age of Ultron. Um, same time, same place. Alana, thanks for uh, joining. And for folks who want to catch us regularly, uh, you can see us every single day at graphicpolicy.com. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, everywhere at Graphic Policy. We keep it nice and consistent. So until next time, I'm Brett. And I'm Ilana. Keep it geeky, and thanks for listening. <laughs>